Well, Morris Thurston, thanks again for uh, coming back on Mormon Stories Podcast. It's very good to have you. Great to be here. All right, well, today we're going to talk about um, two, two main initiatives that you're involved with. Um, the first is the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and the second is your understanding of some, um, some of the important legal or extradition uh, lawsuits that Joseph Smith was involved in during his time in Nauvoo. Right, and that... T- ties into the Joseph Smith Papers Project and the work that I'm doing on it. Yeah. So let's start. What, what is the Joseph Smith Papers Project that you, that you can tell us? How did it start? What does it hope to accomplish? And what's your role in it? Well, I think the purpose of the project is to assemble complete and reliable texts of all of the surviving Joseph Smith documents. And uh, by Joseph Smith documents, we mean documents that Joseph Smith either uh, wrote himself uh, or were written for him by scribes. In other words, they come in the first person out of his mouth. Uh, Or in the case of the legal series, uh, legal cases that Joseph Smith was involved in. And my uh, my part of it is I'm one of the editors, co-editors of the legal series, and I particularly specialize in the Nauvoo period. Okay. And um, do we have a sense for the scale or the size of the project? Well, it's a big project. Uh, there, there's a lot more to it than you might think. Uh, it, it covers, in fact, let me just uh, say some of the areas that it covers. Uh, first of all, there will be a series on the journals. And by these, we mean the journals and the diaries kept by Joseph Smith or by his clerks. And those, I believe, will be about three volumes when they're finished. Uh, there will be a document series that will include uh, correspondence that Joseph wrote, uh, revelations that he received, uh, discourses, editorials in the newspaper that he wrote, things like that. And then there will be a history series uh, that's going to take, if, if any of your listeners are familiar with the big six or seven volume set of history of the church that everyone used about 100 years ago, uh, that was done in Utah, but it drew from sources uh, in, from the Nauvoo and earlier periods as well. And we're going to go back to the original documents, the, the, the handwritten text of that, and transcribe it and make it available because there were obviously alterations and edits that took place as, the, as it became published. And then the legal series will involve every case that Joseph Smith was involved in either as a plaintiff, a defendant, or even as a judge. When he was in Nauvoo, he served as the chief justice of the Nauvoo Municipal Court. And we're trying to uncover as many of the papers related to those legal cases as we can and then publish them and make them available to scholars. And there will be, I think, three volumes in that series. Uh, Other things, an administrative series perhaps, uh, a canonical series. Uh, People know that, for example, uh, the revelations that are currently in the Doctrine and Covenants have had alterations made to them through the years. Uh, Most of them were made at the time of Joseph Smith, where they were simply revised. And most of the revisions, as I understand it, are wording changes, but uh, we're going to go back and find the original handwritten texts and even each iteration of those, at least in the early days, and make those available so that people can compare them. Who's sponsoring this? 
Well, it's sponsored in part by the church. And I say in part, the church archives or the church history department is in charge of it. Specifically, Ron Esplin is the managing director. And of course, he works under the supervision of Elder Jensen, the church historian. The cost of it, though, is being picked up by Larry H. Miller, who's been very, very generous in uh, underwriting the different historians that are working on the project. And, and there's a lot of people working on the project. Do you have a sense? Dozens? Hundreds? Well, in, at the archives themselves, I think there's probably uh, uh, 15 or, or so historians who are regularly on the staff there. But then there are others assigned to the project, uh, professors down at BYU, uh, retired professors, retired church education service people, uh, people like myself, who, and all of the legal editors are uh, retired lawyers, or lawyers, some of us practice still. Uh, so there's a variety of people, and altogether, I think at least 50 historians are involved in the project. Wow. Now, why? What's the motive behind this? It's to, right now, if someone's going to write a scholarly book about Joseph Smith, they pretty much have to rely on secondary sources or they have to spend half their life traveling around the country and finding archives with these papers and then reading them in the handwritten version, which is extremely tedious and it's easy to make mistakes. Our, our goal is we want the truth to be written. We don't want someone to rely on a secondary source and have it turn out not to be right. And there are a lot of mistakes that are made between primary and secondary sources. So one of the things we've been very, very careful about is making sure that we're as letter-perfect as possible. Every single document, you start out with a handwritten document, everyone is read by and typed up by an initial inputter who has expertise in in interpreting old documents. And then a second level of review is undergone where a, the editor of the, of the particular series, such as myself, will take the original handwritten copy and there will be a blind check. There will be a second person who will have the typescript copy. And I would read from the handwritten copy. And every time I say something different than what's on the typescript copy, the, the person who's reading that says, stop, look at that word again, what do you really think that says? And then I'll look at it and examine it. And between the two of us, we'll try to decide what the word really says. And if there's still any question about it, it then goes to a third level. All the ones places where we have questions will go to two or three people who specifically have uh, advanced training in handling ancient documents. So by the time we're finished, uh, we should have really as, as perfect a text as is possible to make. That's a pretty massive undertaking then. It is, and it's been years in the making, and a lot of people have kind of complained that, you know, why aren't you publishing these things? Uh, and I think the editors are frustrated as well. But it is my understanding that uh, we're very likely to have at least uh, two or three volumes published uh, in the next calendar year. So in 2008? Yes. Well, that's good. What else, what else do you have to tell us about the project? Well... Included in the project will not only be the texts of these documents, but there will be an introduction to each volume that will put it into historical context. 
so a lot of time is being spent to try to do that. Uh, there will be very detailed annotations and footnotes. So every time, for example, in the legal series that you read about a lawyer or a judge that's involved in one of Joseph Smith's cases, or even in one of the parties, there will be a footnote that will reference who that is, and then there will be a biographical directory at the, at the end of each volume that will uh, take the most important people, and uh, you can look that up. There will be geographical directories, uh, new, newly rendered maps, uh, a glossary of terms that might be difficult, which is especially important in legal series because they're using antiquated legal terms in a lot of these uh, cases, and a chronology covering the period for each volume. So there will be a lot of added documents that will be kind of fun for not only the professional researcher but even for a casual reader. We don't expect that the, the casual reader will purchase the whole series. We're probably talking between 20 and 30 volumes that will be something they would probably consult in the library. But amateur historians who, who have the funds, and certainly libraries and professional historians, could be very valuable. And it'll be available in, in a paper form, published form. I imagine it'll also be available on DVD and on the Internet? Well, in the back of each volume, we're going to have a DVD with, uh, with the text of the documents. And... In some cases, there will be documents that are sort of peripheral and, and maybe don't warrant being included in the, in the written text, and those will be on the DVDs as well. And, the, and we are planning a website, uh, and eventually uh, much, if not most, of these documents uh, will probably be on the website as well. I, I will say this. I'm not the administrator of the series, so I'm just giving you my best understanding, and it could be flawed in some respects. No, it's good. Uh, what else? Any, any, anything else you have? Uh, I have a couple questions, but I want to make sure you've covered uh, other things that are... Well, I, I guess the only other thing I would say is that during the coming year, uh, there's going to be a series of television shows that will be on uh, Larry H. Miller's channel, and I'm from California, so I think it's channel 13, it's the one that Jazz is on. And uh, Maybe 14. Is it 14? Maybe. Okay. Uh, in any event, uh, these will be, uh, as I understand it, videos made from lectures that were given by the various editors of the project on a tour that was taken last fall. And it was a wonderful opportunity. I was there, and, and all of our spouses were there, my wife as well. Uh, Larry Miller uh, underwrote the cost of this. And we began uh, at the birthplace of Joseph Smith in Vermont and followed his footsteps to all of the major sites of history involving Joseph Smith all the way to Carthage, where he was uh, murdered. And at each stop... Uh, editors of the paper were prepared to give a brief presentation, a 15-minute presentation on what happened at that particular place. And my understanding Tell us some of the names of the people that, that we might be aware of uh, in terms of who's involved, who are some of the editors. Well, Richard Bushman, for example, I think he's very familiar to most people. Uh, a lot of the uh, historians who've been around for a long time. I think we'd like to pick their brains while they're, they still have brains, and I'm smiling as I say that. Uh, but people like Dean Jesse, uh, Milton Backman, 
Richard Anderson. Uh, these are some of the people that I look up to as been historians through the years. Uh, younger historians, uh, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm always bad when, when I have to call names out of the air, but Ron Esplin is certainly one of those. Uh, Bill Hartley from BYU. Uh, uh, just a lot of really outstanding people. Wonderful. And so uh, you got to hear a bunch of them present on the, in their areas of expertise? Yeah, and right on site, which is an opportunity that people almost never get. You know, usually you go to these places and you'll have a missionary who sort of has a set script and it's pretty general. Uh, but these people were able to call upon years of scholarly research and get much more into it. So that's, that's one of the things. I guess that's the last thing I really have to talk about unless you have other questions. Well, yeah, let me ask just a, a couple questions that come to mind. Um, uh, some of my listeners may know um, if they've read uh, Adventures of a Church Historian or if they've listened to a past podcast or two, that when Leonard Arrington was called as church historian in 1972, one of the things he wanted to do was to create a multi-volume set of, um, uh, of a church history, like a 10 or 15-volume set that would cover many of the major eras of, um, of the church history. Uh, and, he, and his goal was to be as accurate and, as you said, tell the truth as, as he possibly could. Um, and those of who have read the, the autobiography realize that, uh, according to Arrington, many of the brethren got uncomfortable with the history that was being written because it didn't always cast uh, Joseph or the church or whatever, and, and always a faith-promoting positive light. And so by the end, um, it, it seems as though Leonard Arrington was sort of forced to cancel that project, and then some of those authors independently published the books that they were going to use in the series. So, for example, Richard Bushman published Joseph Smith and Beginnings of Early Mormonism, or whatever it's called, um, which had been intended to be part of the series, but instead he just published it himself. So, you know, that whole Leonard Arrington era seemed to have represented this intent um, to be perfectly honest and candid with history. Um, But then... You know, I would say it appears as though some of the brethren got cold feet. And I could be wrong, but that's sort of how I've sometimes felt uh, it seemed to have gone down. This seems to be sort of another attempt at doing that, but even in more excruciating detail. It reminds me a bit of the folklore I've heard about when some of the papyra were discovered in the 1960s or whenever um, that related to the Book of Abraham. Um, it seemed as though the church, you know, since the brethren have a conviction that it's true and they have confidence that it's true, the attitude was almost, we have no fear in, in, in sharing the world this papyrus because the Egyptologists are only going to confirm what we've always known, which is that these documents that Joseph Smith used to create the book of Abraham were written, you know, and will reflect the text in the book of Abraham and it turns out that that's not quite what happened, that, that the Egyptologists sort of had a different interpretation, which cast, the doubt in some, cast doubt in some people's mind on the authenticity of the Book of Abraham. Well, here we now have Joseph's diaries, his personal letters, you know, legal accounts, sort of every possible document ever, you know, primary document you could imagine on Joseph Smith, now not only being made available in book form, but in DVD form and on the web. You know, I guess I have two questions. Number one is, is correlation involved at all? 
that you know of, or are you able to talk about that? Because um, it seems like that's something that they would sort of potentially be concerned about. And then secondly, um, do you think that there's any, you know, is this does this pose the same type of risk for um, those who would want to bring the church down uh, that the brethren would have felt in the late 70s that made them, you know, uh, do what they did to the Leonard Arrington administration. It's a big question, and I don't. I, I'm not trying to put you forth as the expert to either speak for the church or this project. But any opinions or perspective you may want to share, that's cool. And if not, we can move on to. <laughs> well, I don't have any problem giving you my opinions uh, and understanding that they may not be the official opinions of the church. My feeling is this is a very different project than what Leonard Arrington had in mind is the first point, and I'll get into that in a minute. And the second point is, I think we've come a number of years uh, now since then, and I think as the church uh, matures and uh, newer, uh, more scholarly uh, uh, general authorities are put into positions of authority, uh, perhaps they are coming to understand that uh, scholarship is going to go forward, whether uh, the church uh, agrees or not. And so the thought with this is, why not at least make sure that the scholars who are working on these projects have the, the correct text and are writing correct things? Uh, and that's the primary focus of the Joseph Smith papers. The problem with the Arrington series is that you had historians writing books. And whenever a historian writes a book, every historian has a bias, whether in this case, whether it be a bias toward the church or against the church. And even when one tries to walk that delicate middle line, as I think Richard Bushman did admirably in his Rough Stone Rolling, he still gets uh, pilloried by either side. And uh, so uh, you can almost never have a non-controversial history book, but you can have non-controversial texts of ancient documents because you're just doing the best you can to represent them and then allow the historians to write. And I think the thought is that the historians who are working on this project will in the future publish books. I myself have thought about perhaps publishing a book about Joseph Smith and the legal career or maybe even more narrowly Joseph Smith and Nauvoo. So that's the difference that I think I see. I really do feel, particularly with Elder Jensen, who is a very, uh, uh, very, very interested in history. This is not just uh, something that he uh, dabbles in now and then, but he really does uh, enjoy history, and he reads a lot. And I think that he's an ideal person uh, as far as a general authority to be in charge of all this. And I think he will do the best he can to make sure we get everything that is necessary. Having said that, uh, yes... I think there will inevitably be uh, situations where the brethren are going to be reviewing these volumes. And uh, I'm sure that with regard to footnotes here and comments there, there will be give and take. I have no doubt about that. But at least we'll have the underlying documents. And by the way, I'm not aware of any involvement with correlation in this, although I'm not on the inside of the church, so I'm not sure what correlation does. But uh, I have not seen any evidence that that's the case here. So you're saying you're not aware of, of um, significant instances where a document will be um, made available, but then there will be a decision not to publish the document because it doesn't 
because the story it tells is, is potentially too damaging. Not, not that I'm aware of, but like I say, I'm not, I don't deal at that level. I know in the legal series, uh, we're struggling to find uh, legal materials all over the country. And whatever we find, we're, we're just excited to find. Uh, and we publish it. But then maybe the legal series is less controversial than some of the others. Okay. That makes sense. So um, tell me if you agree that, that at a minimum this might represent two things. One is, you know, if we think we've had lots of books and scholarship on Joseph Smith in the past, this is likely to accelerate and even lead to a potential explosion uh, of new scholarship and, and books uh, on Joseph Smith. Is that true? I think that's right. And this type of work has been ongoing. There are a number of editors of books that are publishing books all the time that pull early church documents and put them in published form. But they tend to be more solo efforts. And you have, as a scholar, you have to rely on the, on the ability of that individual to put a really flaw-free book out there. And it's a lot more difficult to do that when you're one individual working alone than when you have a number of people and it's undergoing several levels of, of checking. But yeah, I think it'll make it, uh, it'll really open up a lot of stuff for scholars. And particularly, I hate to sound like I'm tooting our own horn, but the legal series has been one that uh, even the, the editors who are non-lawyers have commented, uh, for example, Ron Esplin, the managing director, I'll just read you something he wrote, uh, understanding obscure references, trying to understand unusual settings, and exploring long-forgotten history has taken us into many nooks and crannies, shedding light on things we didn't understand well before. Nowhere is this more true than with the legal series. There are several times more cases and other entanglements before the law than we knew about, and our legal experts are, perhaps for the first time in a hundred years, coming to really understand the prevailing law in the jurisdictions where Smith functioned. Only now have we come to appreciate the extent of his legal entanglements. Nearly 200 times before a magistrate is a plaintiff or a defendant, and the time and resources these demanded. And I'll just uh, put a, foot, a, a exclamation point on that. When we think of all that Joseph Smith accomplished in his relatively brief life, to have invo been involved in 100 to 200 legal cases on top of that. And that can be very time-consuming, and it can be stressful and difficult, uh, and have this going on at the same time that he was running the church, giving uh, revelations, etc., is quite remarkable. So to, to sort of wrap this, this section up, it, it sounds like um, for those who are wanting to be detractors of the church, there will probably be new evidence or documents that would allow them to sort of try and make their case more in an amplified way. But, but even more interesting, perhaps, you know, the fact that the church is deciding to do this, it seems to represent a level of faith or confidence that the record overall is going to um, shine favorably upon the church and, and be good for the church in the end, or the church maybe wouldn't be sponsoring it. So this, this is sort of, seems to me to be a display in confidence and of faith that the, that the record is actually a favorable one for the prophet and for the church. You know, as I look at it, I'm not sure that I would even say favorable because 
those of us who've dabbled in the records know there are, there are documents out there that make individual church leaders, including Joseph Smith, look bad from today's perspective. But I think the confidence is that none of this would take away from the overall mission and accomplishment of Joseph Smith. And to me, that represents a new maturity uh, of the church. Uh, at least I'm hopeful that it does. Um, yeah, I think that's all I, I have on that. Well, um, that's fascinating, and we'll uh, look forward to updates as they develop. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for giving us the update on the Joseph Smith Papers Project. You're welcome. Oh 